Welcome to On The Verge. This podcast will highlight interviews from entrepreneurs, musicians, and professional golfers. It will center around what tools they have used to help them reach their dreams, how they use golf to further their career, whether it be for escape from the rigors of their profession or to build more business, and how the communitas of wine, music, and golf enrich their lives. This is all about the enjoyment of life, rising above the struggles, and stretching past the best to be better every day. On The Verge. On The Verge is presented by Cure, cannabis used for research and education. The medical industry is steadfastly looking to help millions of patients that suffer from injuries related to repetitive motion, sports, trauma, and many other orthopedic injuries, as well as skin disorders, mental disorders, cancer, and osteoporosis, to name only a few of the other underlying conditions that billions suffer from each day. On average in this country, we have 10,000 people turning 65 every day. With the cost of pharmaceutical medicines increasing, patients deserve natural alternatives that are not only more cost-effective, but also safer for them and society. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing a therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you. Or check out their website at www.curemich.com. Cure, cannabis used for research and education. On the Verge is also brought to you by Green Scene. Green Scene is a family-owned company recognized as the Sizzle Award winner for outdoor living in Williamson County. We design and construct areas to blend with the natural landscape of your yard. That can include outdoor spaces, gazebos, fire pits, outdoor kitchens, and yes, putting greens. We understand the importance of your home. That's why we never settle for anything but the best. Green Scene also provides multiple teams with professional landscape maintenance, irrigation, and outdoor lighting. Welcome to On The Verge. Today's special guest is James Muriel. He is uh, a branding expert. He is from London, and he has moved to Nashville. For what other reason? Love. But anyway, we're here to discuss really interesting things to me because it's a, it's one of the final pieces of be making your ideas come to life, which is branding. And it's not something that I've ever really given much thought to because I've always thought my brand was what I exude. But it is more than just that. So joining me now, James Muriel. James, welcome to On The Verge. Thank you for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I'm, I'm fascinated because we were just before we got on the air, we were talking about flow states and uh, understanding optimum performance and how neuro-linguistic programming kind of I, I kind of weave in underneath the hood. And branding has its own kind of subliminal suggestion that this is what you want to buy. How did you get into branding? And when did you do that, that deep dive into understanding that branding is not just branding? It is a very deep and very well thought out science to attract people to your brand. So, yeah, I think it's, um, you know, it's always fascinating. I was always drawn to design initially and sort of understanding how um, how various different aesthetics could communicate different ideas. And and so in, 
in university you're kind of training as a designer you're sort of understanding how to make things kind of uh how to make things work how to make get ideas across um and then i kind of came into the industry and um and i was in a job where um it was very much a kind of design firm so it was it, it kind of uh we were just really at the end of a process where we were sort of making things look as good as they could be and and there was something kind of really unfulfilling for me about that where uh i felt like there was so much more interesting kind of questions at the beginning of the process of like why are we doing this what are we, what are we doing it for who's it for what's you know what is it going to what's its role in the world mm-hmm. um and then at the end is kind of like and how do we present it um and so i sort of uh, i moved away quickly from from that side of the process into um into a branding agency where um and i was very fortunate to kind of land where i did because uh i had these incredible mentors um uh a person called jeremy haynes uh who sort of um he was just fascinated with the mind and why people make the decisions that they make and and i was fascinated with that as well and it had always been something that kind of intrigued me as to kind of like you know why do people choose this over this what are, what is it they're 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 looking for or what is it that they see in this and um and so it really was kind of um you know quite fortunate in a way that i ended up in the perfect place mm-hmm. and uh and we would do a lot of kind of we combine design with research and then also kind of strategy as well um and and the research was always the most fascinating part for me because it was really uh the researches that we had were really sort of diving into people's subconscious in these research groups mm-hmm. and um and it was honestly just so fascinating for me to uh to see the way that they kind of entered into people's minds without them really being aware of it as you mm-hmm. say much yeah. like in your training um you know and how you could actually extract the right answers from people without them really even being aware of it um and and how important it was to um i think the difference between sort of branding and design is sort of uh, almost a question of subjectivity versus objectivity mm. so um so subjectively we can look at a design and say i like that i don't like that um it's nice because of the color or what have you objective objectively uh, which is really i feel like the fundamental of branding is what is it communicating like regardless of whether i like it or not what does it say yeah who is it for um what is it trying to communicate and i think that that's the the most important question with branding is not whether it's right or wrong because you know much like um you know listening to your uh, talks with Vince Gill for example mm-hmm. you know he was talking about the various different genres of music and you know how some people only like country music versus uh you know kind of rock music or what have you but there isn't necessarily the right music you know there's different in expressions and interpretations and and in a way he's you know he think he said there's there's two types of music there's good music and bad music <laughs> <laughs> so and, true and i think that it's the same is true in branding in that you know there's something that communicates well and compu- communicates what it needs to or there's something that doesn't communicate well and those are really the two absolutes in a way yeah. um and an understanding the codification that's sort of hardwired into us um 
is is a way of being able to um, utilize a, a, a common understanding that we that we've accumulated over time. Um, if you can unlock those things, then um, then that's a way that uh, you can kind of make branding very easy. I'm talking about yeah. very sort of complicated things here, sure. but then actually what it comes down to is that branding is not, uh, it doesn't need to be technical and difficult. Um, you know, I think um, one of the things I'm most interested in is is actually, you know, I find that, you know, it's very easy to overcomplicate branding. There's a lot of kind of models out there. There's a lot of brand wheels and brand houses and dodecahedrons of dominance and, mm -hmm. you know, all kinds of stuff that you can kind of, um, you know, build as systems. And a lot of agencies have like the, you know, brandology TM and all of this sort of stuff, which is, you know, it's great to have their own processes. But at the same time, fundamentally, you know, what are we talking about? We're talking about decision making. We're talking about people. We're talking about why they make the decisions that they make and how can we use that uh, to our advantage in a way, really, mm -hmm. I think. Um, so, you know, people have are going to commonly make similar decisions, but we need to sort of understand why they're doing that and, and how we can sort of, you know, jump on board that train rather than trying to change the direction of it, really. Yeah. Um, but um, I think what's what's interesting listening to your talks, um, yeah, I think uh, was it Christina Donaldson that mm -hmm. you're talking about flow and uh, and kind of that that place that you go to in your mind, how to get to that place in your mind. Um, you know, it feels like that's a sort of heightened state. Um, and I don't know if you've if, have you ever read um, uh, Daniel Kahneman's uh, Thinking Fast and Slow? No, but it, I have the book and it's it's on the pile for right. me to read. It's coming up. That is something that was really eye opening to me uh, because it was sort of something that we we all commonly understood in in branding, but at the same time hadn't really sort of uh, seen it uh, methodically picked apart in yeah. a way uh, in the way that he did so he's a, a, a psychologist that ended up getting the Nobel Prize for economics um, wow. and and it was his studies about um, the kind of systems of the mind and I think it kind of dovetails into the flow ideas where he 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 talks about two systems in that in the mind so you have system one uh, which is kind of your autopilot state uh, so it's kind of your most commonly um, held state where you're not in any sort of mortal danger. You're, you're, you know, everything's kind of fine. There's nothing kind of um, you're being tested on in particular. Um, and we sort of cruise in in system one. It takes very little energy, very little concentration to be in there. It's kind of our just sort of default state. Yeah. And then he talks about a system two, which is um, which is a kind of very heightened analytical. Um, state which would um, be for example um, you know, if I asked you to do some long division in your head for example you kind of stop everything else that you're doing and try and work something out you're kind of all of your concentration moves towards that um, and so if we were sort of out in the woods jogging and I asked you to do long division in your head you'd probably stop and then just focus on that because you can't do the both at the same, same time. time and so um so this system two thing almost feels to me like it might be kind of 
part of that sort of flow state, maybe where you're in this sort of heightened state, a lot of us struggle to stay in that state yeah. for a long period of time um, because um, it's exhausting. Um, so a lot of us, when given the long division, will give up because it's too difficult. Um, and so we then go back to system one and if we... Um, System one doesn't really sort of uh, question too far. So um, if you were to then sort of present me with an answer that sounded like it could be true, system one would say, yeah, that sounds about right. That's fine. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> Whereas system two would actually analyze it and say, well, actually, no, if you carry the three. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. um, so it's basically, um, you know, I feel like your sort of interest is in the system two area and training the mind to be actually sort of better at maintaining system two uh, and, and in my field i'm all interested in system one i'm interested in the autopilot um, um you know you think of like um you know system one is why you can drive home and not remember a single thing about the journey uh when you get home whereas you know if there was a you know a child that ran into the street then suddenly time slows down everything kind of becomes heightened um you know all kind Very of true. all uh, you know, all senses of firing. Um, so that's when you're kind of kicking into system two when it's sort of like mm. right, okay, we need to uh, assess this situation. Um, so in, in system one is really where branding exists because uh, essentially, um, you know, it's, it's a blessing and a curse in some respects. But um, it's uh, a blessing in the sense that um, in system one we're not we're able to kind of communicate um, sort of rough ideas, if you like. So um, we have become extraordinarily adept at being able to quickly um, assess the world around us. Um, so if we were in uh, System 2 all the time, imagine going to a supermarket aisle and uh, and just looking at the, the bread aisle, for example. Yeah. Um, you know, the system two mind would have to go through every single bread and read the back of the pack, read the story behind it, read how many calories, what have you. Whereas, you know, we don't want to spend the emotional energy and the physical energy even doing that. So we will go down the aisle, look at something that feels about right, that looks about right, and then, you know, maybe double check on price, it's not insane, and then there we go, we've made our decision. Interesting. And this is sort of what, you know, people like Walmart are sort of, you know, and all supermarkets really are kind of, uh, you know, fascinated by as well. It's kind of, you know, when you're going down that aisle and you're not really fully engaged in kind of what your, uh, you know, your mind's probably elsewhere as yeah. you're walking down the shopping, shopping aisle, um, you know, why are we making these very sort of quick decisions? We're very good at making these very quick decisions and understanding whether it's right or wrong for us. Um, mm. And and so we're making these decisions very, very quickly based on a system one. Um, you know, we've, we've get uh, a sort of in, inherent feeling about things by the way in which they're communicated. So it, is it the colors? It's, it's, you know, it's partly the colors of the typography. Uh, what do we know about it in the past? Have we heard anything about it? All of these things are building up a picture. Um, and, and the more consistent and, um, um, and, and sort of coherent that picture becomes, the more uh, easily we're able to understand and assess whether it is right or wrong for us. So branding is not necessarily about, um, 
you know, initially I used to question with my mentor. I was like, "Are we, are we manipulating people? <laughs> <laughs> um, are we, uh, you know, are we sort of del- delving into their subconscious and sort of making them make these decisions?" And and he was very much like, "Well, no, it's these are decisions that they're making themselves. What we're doing is we're just communicating in a way that helps them." Um, sort of more quickly assess whether it's right or wrong for them. So we're basically giving them more handrails to to hold on to Mm -hmm. so that we can quickly assess things and understand if they're right or wrong for us. And and as to whether things are right and wrong for us, that sort of comes into another realm of interest, uh, which is... um, um, so in in you know in that agency we 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 worked with a um, professional psychologist uh, called Dr. Fred Morrison from Ulster University and um, and he uh, sort of had a theory about um, the idea of this um, this identity project that we go on as individuals. So um, his idea was that the um, in our minds we have this kind of perfect self of where we're aiming for. Um, so we might have, um, you know, we sort of think of where we'd like to be in a sort of nondescript part of the future where we're driving a certain car, we're living in a certain house in a certain place, yeah. um, you know, going on vacation <clears throat> in a certain place, uh, what sort of clothes we're wearing, where we're sort of hanging out, what we're doing, our hobbies, what have you. And, and that creates a... A certain tension because um, that's where we're sort of aiming for and then we come back to ourselves and we think okay well but I'm not there I'm not in that place so there is an inherent tension between where I am and where I'd like to be and and so what brands role fulfills is that they can bridge that gap um, they can be a sort of shorthand yeah. for getting to that. So, for example, if I, you know, you know, I always loved travel and exploration. I always, you know, found it fascinating. Always wanted to see as much of the world as I possibly could, and and I don't get to do that on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I get very drawn to you know, kind of Bear grills characters, kind of like, you know, going up mountains and, you know, surviving in the mm-hmm. wild and all of that sure. sort of stuff. Would I be any good at that? No, I'd be terrible at it. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I'm a Londoner. I can barely uh, put a shelf up. <laughs> but, um, um, but, uh, but yeah, I can, what I can do though is I can buy, I can go to REI and I can, you know, buy sort of North Face and Patagonia gear and I can, you know, fulfill that fantasy you know hire a land rover you know like and that will bridge that gap for me of the sort of like the explorer kind of discovery that i'd like to be but actually you know 99.9 percent of the time i'm at home working so i'm not like you know doing that on a daily basis interesting Um, so i met i met you recently at a at a meet and greet mm. with the person i did my very first podcast with brendan donaldson And branding itself, as I've always felt like for me, branding was what I do. I became a brand mm. because of my, how I go about my way. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Brendan has a way about himself. Mm-hmm. You know, he's high voltage. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's human Red Bull, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and he's like, this is a guy you need to meet. <laughs> James, get over here. And I'm like, I'm, so, and I'm like... 
So we started just briefly discussing branding, and I'm like, well, I know that I am my own brand, Mm -hmm. and I have brands within my brand, Mm -hmm. which is obviously the golf teaching and the golf playing, and then there's this about-to-be three-time bestseller Mm -hmm. author, Mm -hmm. two podcasts. I do national. I've been on national TV multiple times on the mm-hmm. Golf Channel. I do local TV for golf for News Channel Five. So I got like this media author, public mm-hmm. speaking, golf teacher, golf player. Got all these things on the not to mention that I'm involved with Defiance Fuel, and I got other a couple other um, unique business opportunities. Like I, I have this multi. It's almost like I'm an octopus. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm the I'm the center, and I got all these tentacles mm-hmm. that go outside of me. And I've never thought of a picture or a label, not that that's just branding, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but I never thought of the value of having something like a picture or a symbol or something Mm -hmm. that is synonymous with me. Mm. And I know that there's a lot of people out there right now wondering what a brand Mm -hmm. or branding themselves or who they are, what they do could have any benefit or what does that look like? But when you're just for example, cause you can use me because we don't know who's listening, but they can all understand like what I do. Mm-hmm. When you, when you look at somebody like myself, who's got a, a bunch of different tentacles out there, mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like there's one brand picture mm-hmm. or thing that would represent all of me, mm-hmm. but maybe there is, and I just don't understand it, but I became very interested in what I would almost think is the next step for me mm-hmm. because I've built all of these things and they're all thriving. Mm-hmm. But yet if you don't live in Nashville, Tennessee or somewhere close to Nashville, Tennessee, mm-hmm. you may have heard of me, but you don't know what I look like. Mm-hmm. And you're not quite sure you're willing to drive four hours to come and get a golf lesson mm-hmm. because there's between where you are and where I am, there's 200 golf professionals mm-hmm. or you're not quite sure that you are going to listen to an hour and a half long podcast because you don't know, you don't know Virgil and you don't know his guest. Sure. So why am I going to invest in that? <laughs> but I've never given it any thought other than me believing that my brand is just who I am. Mm-hmm. Talk to us like uh, talk to us about like a theory on that because I think there's an enormous amount of people that think that their brand is just them Mm -hmm. but it's more than just that and how you can help so yeah so i mean what i've seen you know a lot of is you know very enterprising people like yourself i love you know america for the having so much entrepreneurship about it um and and so it's often a yeah it's a common situation where you have all of these different activities going on and and you think well you know what is it you know is what is the brand? I mean, that's a brand, this is a brand, this is a brand. These are several brands that I'm working on. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, you know, when you say that you are the brand, um, that is partly correct. Um, so the brand is um, is a manifestation of everything, the whole picture. And that is um, it's quite a common misconception that that branding is is the the sort of visual identity uh the logo mm-hmm. the color scheme the typography but actually that's one piece of the puzzle um so that part if successful success, uh, successfully um uh, manifested will 
will um, communicate a bigger idea, which is going to be the, the, the center of the octopus that you described. Mm-hmm. So what is the commonality over and beyond yourself? What is the commonality between these things? And, and because you are the commonality in this instance, we can also um, pick apart exactly what that is mm-hmm. um, so that it's not just um, you you know it, it can be a, a series of different kind of words and ideas that we can then say and this manifests itself across my podcast and in the way that I train people so say for example you know if you're you know interested in in you know and off the top of my head here just sort of um, you know if your main point of interest is how to make people, um, you know, su- successful in what they're doing. Yes. And then how many different ways can you do that? You can do that through the books. You can do that through the podcast. You can do that through hydrating them, you know. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's all kinds of different ways that you can extrapolate that. And there's many more as well. Sure. It's the tip of the iceberg that you're on here. So mm-hmm. you're going to need more than an octopus. But it's... Um, um, you know that is what you're aiming for in the brand the brand is is really about sort of identifying um emotionally kind of what are you trying to communicate what is it that that drives you um and and then the question then is how many ways do i need to manifest that how how many ways do i can i do that and in a way you know so for example um Let's think about, say, Disney, for example. Mm-hmm. Now, so their kind of, you know, purpose, if you like, is to make people happy. It's such a big idea. There's any number of ways that they can do that. And so you can, you know, they can do that through the resorts. They can do that through films. They can do it through TV. They can do it through music. They can do it through, um, you know, cruises. Like all different ways that they can do that. And then the you know a successful brand like that would be consistent as to how we sort of come to those different things so um so we know that it's going to be uh you know a safe experience um wherever we go i mean i kind of think back to i the first time i sort of really thought of that about disney like that was um seeing some Disney cruise tourists in um, in Rome once, and, uh, and there was the Mickey Mouse ears being held in the air as we walked through the Colosseum. And I was thinking, what a strange, incongruous uh, picture that is. <laughs> That's so um, true. But um, but at the same time, you know, for a lot of those tourists, they're looking for the safety and security that comes with you know a trusted brand like disney when it comes to that which you know if you're doing traveling like that by yourself then you know that's a lot more daunting there's a lot more kind of things to do whereas actually like if you're if sort of disney are presenting it to you then it it brings that kind of um that innocence if you like and Mm -hmm. that sort of you know safety and care that you know that would be uh they would think about very very carefully about so does that kind of make sense it's sort of the idea is bigger and then you can manifest it in many different ways, and in an, in a perfect world, they um, they will sort of work independently, successfully by themselves. But when we then find another part of the puzzle, we'll realise that it came from the same house, if you yeah. like. It came from the same set of values 
that we see across all of the different things. Yeah. It's like, to me, I, I view my life, especially as, you, as you're picturing here, I view my life as if I'm sitting at, a, at my business desk and I have what I call radically organized clutter. <laughs> the only person who knows where everything is is me. Right. Sounds right? familiar, actually, yeah. <laughs> and so I feel like I'm very organized. I know where everything is. I know what my mission is in every particular facet of what I do. Mm-hmm. But if somebody else sits at my desk, they can't find anything. Right. So when I, when I was talking with you at that... Um, at that meet and greet, the first thing that crossed my mind was just that picture is that I almost feel like what you're able to do is take my organized clutter mm-hmm. that only I understand mm-hmm. and then clean it, tidy it all up into a place that not only I understand it and it's actually easier for me to see, but it is extremely easier for my clients for whatever version of my clients that I'm talking about, mm-hmm. it's easier for them to touch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's easier for them to understand what I'm, what's, what's my mission. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've never given that deep enough thought because until I met you, I didn't un- like fully comprehend what branding was other than the Michael Jordan logo. Right. You know? yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Like a, the picture, yeah. the logo. And I'm like, well, I don't, well, what's a logo going to do for me? Like that's the, and I think, as, as radically errant as that is, I really think a majority of people think of branding as just that. Sure, yeah. No, and that's why I wanted to have you on here, because not only for me to understand, but I want my listeners who are out there and they feel like they're just right at the edge of amazing success, and what's that one piece I'm missing? Maybe it's branding. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, what's a service that I could provide that my listeners could attach to that could help Mm-hmm. because we've met once on top of the meet and greet mm-hmm. until today. And my mind has yet to stop wondering what is my brand? Mm-hmm. Because the more I thought that I know, the more you've made it clear that you have a brand mm-hmm. and it is radically organized clutter <laughs> on your desk that, only you understand. Mm-hmm. And if you want the masses to fully understand you, you have to make that desk look really easy to navigate. You're exactly right. And I think, um, so the beauty of this is that, you know, your brand, you know, you're already inherently, um, you know, fulfilling your brand. You know, what you don't know is that, uh, we, you know, exactly how that comes across to everyone you know you haven't defined it for yourself that's right so that then you could say to someone else you know say uh you know you want to bring on staff or something like they could also go go off into a different region for example and train in the way that you train um you know they wouldn't have the handrails to be able to do that with yet Mm -hmm. um but you have them within you so really you know this is why branding can be really easy because it is just essentially what you're doing already. There's no, um, the hardest thing, and you could talk to anyone in branding, the hardest thing to change in organizations is behavior. 100%. And, and so, and, you know, you can't fight that too hard. You know, what we have to do, you know, 
from a branding perspective is understand what you're inherently doing and then just kind of identify it for you so that then you can tell other people really quickly and succinctly um, and then we can amplify it mm-hmm. to the maximum because we've understood exactly where we are and we're happy. We're like, this is what we wanted to communicate. Yeah. Now let's amplify it. Now let's shout it from the rooftops. Um, but, you know, you are doing it already. Uh, so, you, you know, it's the, you know, the logo is, you know, something that, that can change, you know, year on year if you like. Sure. Um, but, um, but the, the actual brand itself should probably be the same for, you know, 50, 100 years. You know, the actual kind of values will be something that I maintain with you. Fascinating. Um, and so, yeah, really, you know, successful branding is just about kind of taking a little look, taking a step back, looking inside. I mean, I, when I do the process, um, you know, I've been doing the process with artists uh-huh. in Nashville uh, recently and, and they sort of describe it as therapy because obviously they're in a similar situation. They are the brand. And so as an individual, we are all over the map, like, you know, any one day, any different context, um, you know, but as a brand, we kind of need to be a little bit more consistent. And so they have to, you know, I have to kind of help them through what are all the things that you are. Sure. And now let's zero in on what exactly do you want to, what are the parts that relate to your music that you really want to communicate. Mm-hmm. Now let's focus on that. Now let's amplify that. Now let's, you know, find ways of creating imagery that represent that. Let's find, um, you know, it can be then useful for them to understand, okay, well, so that's my, this is my world now. I don't have to look at other artists and say, oh, they just wrote a song about this, or maybe I should write a song about that. You know, they can they can say, well, okay, well, they're doing their thing. This is my sandbox. I'm going to explore every part of this sandbox and make it, you mm-hmm. know, make it my own. And, uh, and for them, it's, you know, it's incredibly liberating then because they don't have to be looking at all these other people. And, you know, this is kind of, you know, what my intent is, is to get rid of all of the anxiety of branding. You know, once you've got it, once you've been through the method, then you can, essentially be liberated and understand that you only have to kind of communicate you know say five words if you like and if 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 one of your if if the activity that you're doing whatever it is is communicating to one of those five words Mm. then you're doing a good job and and you know it's it's as simple as that really sure um so um so yeah it's it's about trying to simplify the whole process down take away the anxiety from it um, you know, and, uh, and make sure that people kind of understand what we're talking about when we talk about brands. So sure. that, uh, um, I mean, I think I've heard branding described as, you know, when people say, what is a brand? It's kind of a promise of an experience. Oh, so wow. you can deliver a, uh, a promise of an experience, whether you're training me how to play golf or if we're sitting down talking about, you know, um, neuroscience, you know, sure. we can have this, uh, there's going to be commonalities of that experience through you. Yeah. So that, that promise of an experience. So it allows us to sort of understand that when a sure. successful brand, it'll be commonly held and understood between yeah. us. Interesting. So before we get into what you're doing with the artist, mm-hmm. I think it's important to segue into why music and how did you get from London <laughs> yeah. to Nashville? Because it's a it's a it's a beautiful story, and I can't wait to hear the story. But it, to me, 
after being in London two years ago for 10 days, which was really probably the best international travel experience that I've had. I loved London. I was so overwhelmed with like, wow, this is... And I had high it's expectations. Like, it's not very many times. High-functioning chaos, like your, but you know, like your desk. Really. <laughs> and the thing is so funny. That we, we literally had perfect weather for 10 straight days. Amazing. High 70s, low 80s. It's never rained except one time at night. <laughs> so everywhere we went, they're like, you just need to keep coming back to London because the, <laughs> the weather is so, so great. But I had such a great time. But to understand what it took to make you leave your home, to come to America, come to Nashville. And obviously, Nashville is music city, so you're, mm-hmm. the artist piece is, it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's a perfect model for you. Talk to us about your journey from London to Nashville and how we can start to tie this music and artistry together. Well, it's, so yeah, it's an interesting story as to uh, how I ended up here. But um, uh, essentially, it sort of starts in um uh through it all it all comes to music basically yeah. so so my dad was a um uh, a lawyer an aviation lawyer in moscow oh, wow. um and but deep down he was a frustrated artist he wanted to be a songwriter he wanted to you know he all he ever did in his spare time was he'd finish you know grueling shifts at work and and you know contract disputes and what have you and then come to his piano play record you know uh. um come up with lyrics and he, that was his sort of escape um and it was every evening every weekend from probably since i can remember from when i was like six years old um, always a piano or you know if there was a piano in the room he was going to play it we just it was a question of how long <laughs> and so um, um, and so yeah he's he's writing songs uh, in, in Moscow and uh, he put on a he wrote music to a musical that got put on in Moscow um, and then he was in uh, in talks with some people in New York about putting this musical on in in, in New York on Broadway and um and uh, he said, oh, I've also got these other songs as well that I'd you know, be interested in making demos of. And the guy was like, oh, you should get them recorded in Nashville. Um, yeah, Nashville's the place to get to get demos done. And so he came to Nashville and was just his blown away immediately. He, you know, it was kind of the place that he'd always wanted. To. It was like his Disneyland, basically. Yeah. Music everywhere. That's absolutely oh, yeah. what he wanted. Um, and so he ends up uh, doing some demos in a recording studio um with um and uh, sarah uh, my now wife um was was the demo singer on the day <laughs> and so she was uh you know her label spoke to her and said um yeah there's this funny english guy in town he's got some songs he wants to do some demos you know would you be interested in just coming in doing a couple of recordings on it and uh and she was like yeah okay, okay go on then and uh, so she met him and um, and was like, oh, okay, you know, and he said, uh, oh, you should meet my son, which I'm assuming he meant me and not my brother. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, uh, and so he, he was doing all these recordings and he was so proud of me, came to England and, um, and he, uh, you know, he was recording, he would play them to anyone who'd listen, you know, anyone who didn't even want to listen, he'd play them to them. And, um, and then... Um, that uh, that fall, he really unexpectedly passed away. 
Oh goodness. And um and so, you know, that was a real you know, real shock and 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 we we knew that a lot of people he worked with knew that he was into music but didn't really know how far he'd taken it and how far he'd managed to kind of get into that. Um and so we knew that he was so proud of this work that he'd just done. So we invited um Sarah and the and the, the kind of coordinator of it all uh, a guy called Jimmy Nichols, um, over to s- sort of come to the memorial because I knew him obviously as well, and um, and and to sing at the memorial, and so um, so that's the first time I meet Sarah, is actually at the funeral, wow. and um, and um, and yeah, we, we you know just yeah I was in a very sort of you know crazy headspace as you might imagine, sure. and. Uh, um, and I think we did, um, get an opportunity to, I did take her to, uh, to a pub, uh, for a pint of Guinness and some pork scratchings uh-huh, yes. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And that amazingly didn't put her off. Um, but, um, but actually, yeah, we, um, so we just sort of, you know, got to know each other a little bit and, um, and then, um, you know, we were both, you know, in, in, different situations then um and so um it wasn't until a couple of years later that um that you know we'd email back and forth now and again and um and um i was actually on a uh trip i was i was driving i was on a kind of an adventure where i was driving from um from london to mongolia in a um in a sort of minivan that was going to become a mobile library and at the time i was in a uh, internet cafe in Uzbekistan, and uh, and I got an email from Sarah that said uh, I'm on a beach in Destin. Um, yeah, how's the trip going? <laughs> and I was thinking, wow, I'm about as far away from a beach in Destin that you could possibly imagine. Um, and so, literally from that email onwards, um, and uh, you know, the uh, immigration department has got the whole dossier sort of thing, like you mm-hmm. know. Um, from that email onwards, you can track to uh, we we sort of I finished the trip I came came back and uh, Sarah's like oh, I've always wanted to see Paris so we, uh, you know invited her over and I wasn't sure if I was going to be her tour guide or whether you know she was into me as well we we're sort of trying to you know, yeah, f- feel you know, each other out from yeah exactly and uh, oh. um, and uh, and then yeah we fell in love in Paris and then you know. Uh, we sort of dated long distance for a while, kind of meeting up in New York and uh, and um, and in Florida, and uh, and then it sort of came to the point where it's like, okay, well, we kind of have to make a jump here, or you know, um, and uh, and I think that I'd sort of, I mean, I was just so excited by the you know the sort of optimism of America. I'd always dreamed of kind of uh, you know um, being able to to live here and sort hmm. of um, and uh, and. Um, and so, yeah, you know, falling in love and uh, yeah, and getting married to Sarah was just like the perfect, uh, you know. So when the movie comes out from Uzbekistan yeah. <laughs> to the white sand beats of Destin, yeah. um, so you're now, you get a chance to taste the difficulty that these artists have because they're a dime a dozen. Mm-hmm. There's millions of fish in the sea here in Nashville and everybody's trying to figure out mm-hmm. their little advantage niche way Mm -hmm. to be seen Mm -hmm. because literally every small Mm honky-tonk has a superstar playing in it every night yeah 
And some have been there doing it for 10 straight years and they still haven't gotten their break. Mm -hmm. So now you've put, you're putting together a program that I'm very interested mm -hmm. for you to share to help these artists create their brand. Talk mm -hmm. to us about that. Yeah. So, um, so obviously, you know, you know, being branding is sort of my, you know, one of my main passions and, and then, um, obviously, you know, seeing firsthand, you know, how, how difficult it is for artists to get noticed and to kind of get where they, they would like to be. Um, you know, it was always something that, you know, when I, whenever I had spare time, I was trying to find ways to help artists, you know, give them a, a, a like a leg up. I mean, I mm -hmm. guess that there's, it's such a competitive industry. It's also a very unique um, industry in the sense of how many sort of chefs there are um, when it comes to music. I mean, you've got a lot of, you know, a lot of people involved there. You've got agents, you've got touring agents, you've got managers, you've got labels, you've got publishers. Um, you know, there's a lot of people involved in that, you know, PR teams, what have you. So there's a lot of opinions going around. There's a lot of sort of design by committee going on. Mm -hmm. And and what I was seeing was that, you know, people were being pushed and pulled all over the place. And 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 I feel like it was very sort of disconcerting for them because they weren't really sure where they should go and they were sort of following the leader a little bit as well. Um, so basically, I wanted to be able to give the power back to the artist, give them the control for, so that they can say, this is my brand, All right? Now, team, you know, go and do your thing, but this is where we will start from. Mm -hmm. And um, And I think that for a lot of artists, they assume that the sort of promised land of getting to the label that all of these questions will be answered hmm. that all of these sort of you know they'll you know they're like kind of once i get there then i'll i'll know how you know what i'm supposed to do but realistically you know the labels don't necessarily want to have to do that for you they want to jump on something that works mm -hmm. um they don't always have the space and the capacity to be able to um you know develop that with you it kind of is it falls upon the artist and there's a lot of responsibility on the artist to kind of package yourself up yeah. neatly so that you can you know present yourself to these various different people and say you know this is who i am you know are you interested and uh but the problem with um you know with branding you know is there's a lot of time it's very expensive um and so that could be you know artists you know don't always kind of you know command huge fees when they're starting out and that's yeah. really difficult and because you know you've got that tension there where you know they need the most help but they don't have enough money to get the right help and so i wanted to be able to create a course that was affordable um but would give them all the basics that they need that will be useful you know regardless of if you know if, if music works out or doesn't if you understand how brands work and how you know, psychology works and why psychology plays such a, uh, a key role in branding, then that is something that's going to be useful for the you know, entire career. Um, but it will give you the best opportunity to, to present yourself. And so I basically created a course uh, that I'm doing um, um, in sort of, you know, downtown Nashville. Um, and, uh, and rather than it being sort of, you know, a thousand plus dollars for this um, experience I brought it down to $250 and then off the back of that as well I'm creating these modules um, where um, uh, you know they may need help with social media for example mm -hmm. so there's a social media module that they can take at a later date they don't have to do it all in one month they can kind of spread it all out um, but you know 
how to get to grips with social media how do you communicate across the different platforms how do you analyze whether it's working um how do you uh you know how do you work with with paid advertising and, and on uh social media all of these things and this is with you know team team um members like uh kelsey uh, mcduffie and and uh and so you know we're sort of trying to uh create um ways to help artists uh in different ways that we can do that in a really affordable way in a sort of you know bite-sized way that we can work with their budgets basically got it what's the uh where, where are you sending them to is there a website or is there a place that you're looking to have them go yeah so um uh i've got a website called methodbrand.co um and um and that's going to um i'm putting it together at the moment so yeah. uh, bear with me if it's not all kind of quite there but it's uh but yeah essentially that'll kind of give you the basic details of what's uh um of how to kind of get in contact if you're interested mm-hmm. um and um and uh there's uh, methodbrand.co on on instagram as well you know Always that you can kind of get in contact with me and uh, and you know express some interest in uh, in doing this course that will kind of just be on the for, right path. Just for musical artists, or is this for anybody? So at the moment, it's just for artists. But I'm also going to uh, what I want to do is you know create these different modules that will be um, created for different sectors. So at the moment, oh, I'm good. kind of putting one together that's uh, using mainly through examples. You know, what are the examples I'm showing? I'm going to show all the, the artists. The mm-hmm. fundamentals are, are all the same. I think that's why I love branding so much is because, you know, it doesn't matter which sector you go in, you're essentially talking about how people's process. minds work. Yeah. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, which is why you're kind of drawn to, you know, <laughs> all of these various different activities as well, I think. Um, and, um, so yeah, so basically, um, at the moment it's just artists, but there will also be, other modules that will help for startup businesses, for example, um, and uh, and beyond. You know, realtors. I've been you know working with. And, oh yeah, um, it's another sector. Know. Well, yeah. I mean, again, it's sort of you know, it, there's a lot of responsibility on the realtor to to do it all themselves. Really, I mean, they mm-hmm. can kind of hide behind you know the sort of Remaxes and the Keller Williams and what have you, but you know, they're not necessarily going to do the legwork for you. You kind of need to do it. Yourself. build it all yourself mm-hmm. um and um and so yeah i've been working with you know realtors across the u.s actually in california and, oh, wow. and locally and uh um and you know i think the you know the best thing is really just sort of seeing how you know energized and how excited they are once they have their brand in place and they understand what they need to do in the future yeah. it just sort of takes away all that anxiety takes away all that kind of guessing because uh, they just know what they're supposed to do, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's always just such a liberating thing to see. To sure. Know. So the the most impactful part of my show, especially based around the feedback that I get from oh, yeah. my listeners, is this piece on perseverance that I love to talk about. Mm. And generally speaking, most people don't like to talk about their difficulties, and they kind of keep them to themselves. But at the end of the day, hearing stories about something that people persevere through come out the other side that they didn't think that they were going to be able to overcome Mm -hmm. but once they overcome it it steals their resolve that they know that now they can take on just about anything Mm -hmm. and come out the other side what is that one moment thing time or place in which you you were forced into a the the biggest version of perseverance that you faced and when you what did you do to overcome it and what has it taught you I think um, it's a very interesting question. Um, 
I think there's probably, um, you know, the way I sort of think about them is almost like um, traumas in a way. Mm -hmm. So you kind of go through these various different uh, traumas and and they almost sort of, you know, you carry them with you a little bit, don't you? Don't you? I mean, it's sort of, uh, I think, you know, there would be um, certainly the death of my father. That was um, certainly a, a you know trauma that you kind of hold, yeah. uh, and that really sort of you know there's no magic answer to how to kind of get through these you know how to persevere through these things. Uh, you know, time is a healer, and 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 you know sort of I almost felt like it was a huge sort of void that then gets filled by the love of friends and family, um, and and that's you know, the, kind of the only way that I could kind of get through that really. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, uh, from a professional level, I guess, um, there was a, uh, a particular, uh, job I had with a particularly nasty boss, I guess. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it was quite a small office and, uh, and that, um, you know, there was sort of no escape and, um, and it was very much a sort of, uh, um, I guess, you know, sometimes you you come across sort of bosses that don't really have or they they lack the sort of the sympathy and the empathy for not understanding why you're not as good as them oh yeah very and, interesting and that you know is something that they've developed over time but they get frustrated with and you hear it a lot with sports players players that turn coaches mm -hmm. that get very frustrated with players because they're not they can't do the thing that they would naturally do um and and I guess, um, so yeah, I was in a situation like that a little bit where I was just starting out in my career and, uh, and this guy was you know, a phenomenal designer, but he was, you know, lacked that kind of understanding of why I couldn't be as good as him. And, uh, and so that would, took huge amounts of, you know, dents into confidence, I mm -hmm. guess. Um, and so you start to question, you know, like, oh, is, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing, yeah, should I ever do this? And, um, and in order to get through that, I think it was about... Um, you know, trying to um, understand the bigger picture, I guess. And, and and I guess with hindsight, that's really easy. At the time, it's really difficult. Oh, no doubt. Um, but, um, you know, finding very small ways that you can get yourself out of that situation, sort of recognizing the problem and then saying, okay, so, you know, I may be lacking in confidence right now, but maybe I can put my resume together. So maybe that'll just kind of you know, be a step in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, tomorrow maybe I can, you know, email off my resume to someone. Like maybe I can ask a friend, do they know of anyone else that's sort of looking for a job or something like that? Um, and so trying to break down the problem, you know, that seems insurmountable into the tiniest chunks that you can possibly imagine. Um, that's the only way that I've you know, found that you can kind of get through these things. I guess. Yeah, you can't put an elephant in the sandwich, but you can take one bite at a time. Right, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's so true. <laughs> I, I find it, if, it fascinating that you know like that piece that you just talked about with like the difficulties of maybe Larry Bird being a great basketball coach versus being the legendary basketball player that he was is like when he's talking about what to do on the court and it doesn't it doesn't happen the way he would have done it right you know and i think that that's where i always try to work towards not seeing an end result with like my clients when I'm, mm. when I'm teaching them golf mm -hmm. is that I don't want to compare you to the most famous golfer that I've taught Brant Snedeker. Mm -hmm. It'd be unfair, but <laughs> yeah. what I'm going to do Bit is insult I'm, to him, uh, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to offer the process 
that we went through mm-hmm. and help you understand how he used that process to be the best version of himself. Right. And your job is to find this process to be the best version of yourself. So stop trying to compare yourself to anybody else other than you. Exactly. Because you're not trying to make all of your clients into your version of a golfer. That's right. You know, identify, I think that's you know, what the key to all kind of great management really is, you know, understanding what people are great at and then, you know, let, amplifying that, like letting them run with that, mm-hmm. not trying to change them into versions of yourself. That's right. Because uh, again, it's just, you know, much like with with branding, if you're pushing against the tide, if you're pushing against who they are, it's going to be hard. It's yeah. going to be tough and you can't sustain it. Uh, so you have to work with what, uh, what's available and then you know, take the best parts of that and, and run with that. No doubt. Well, we've, we've spent plenty of time discussing the things that you do in your professional life that obviously drain the battery. It's a lot of work and a lot of attention and a lot of intention mm-hmm. to help. So, but you can't do that all the time. You have to do things to re recharge your batteries. And historically speaking, in human civilization, it generally has a lot to do with things that people do like-mindedly together. Mm-hmm. So that's why 125,000 people show up to watch a soccer game or a football game, right? Yeah, you know, or, or they go. Eighty thousand people go to Wembley to watch a, a, a concert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or something like that. So when you were growing up. Who were your favorite bands, favorite music? Do you know what? It's, it's interesting. Um, you know, it's funny. I was listening that I, I heard that you're a Pearl Jam fan. And actually, that sort of is funny because Pearl Jam was the first uh, CD that I ever bought. Oh, um, nice. And uh, Pearl Jam 10. And uh, to be honest, I think at the time it was because. I just love the fact that there was a poster inside. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. And um, and the, the music was kind of secondary to it. Um, and um, but then, as you you know, in hindsight, it was actually you know a great thing. I, I mean, obviously, you know, in England there was such an array of musical talent, and you know, my formative years were all kind of a lot of Britpop things, so like Blur and Oasis. And, oh yeah, uh, I love Oasis. Um, and um, but actually, you know. A lot of kind of uh, you know American influence as well. I love Soundgarden, love um, you know Pearl Jam, and uh, um, and you know and then all the classics as well. Obviously Beatles, kind of Led Zeppelin. And, uh, sure. Um, I mean the thing is that I I sort of um, I, you know I resonated a lot with you know hearing what Vince Gill was talking about that you know I never like to sort of limit to one genre at all. I think it's just, there's so many amazing kind of uh, approaches to these various different things. So country was a whole kind of new thing for me when I get, when I got here, I didn't really know much about country music. And, and so discovering country music has been really fun for me as well. Um, It's, um, you know, I feel like it's, you know, listening to the right music in the right context is really important. And Mm so initially I was driving around Nashville listening to, like grime music and just thinking like <laughs> London grime music and thinking like Dizzy Rascal doesn't really quite cut it here. It's not quite, it doesn't look right. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and then you put on some country and you're like, yeah, this feels exactly right for this place. Very and, true. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, so yeah, influences all over the place really, to be honest. But so when like, I flew back from London, I watched the documentary on Amy Winehouse. Ah, yeah. Great documentary. That. And, uh, I, that one song that she had that was so famous, I liked. But I, I didn't. I listened to her her, her CD 
maybe twice, and it didn't like get me. Mm-hmm. But after I watched the documentary, changes everything, doesn't it? It really does. Yeah. <laughs> and like, there is part of kind of what we're talking about. Until you understand the story of somebody's life, mm-hmm. maybe their music doesn't resonate with you. But when you understand the life that she had and the mm-hmm. music that she, it tied it all together. And now, now I am like. And there were, what a tragic loss of epic talent. Uh, yeah. And, and and what's interesting is I know that you're a lyrics guy. Yes, I am. Seeing the, you know, you know, in the, uh, you know, some of the sort of the gravitas of some of those lyrics get lost in the sort of melody of, you know, uh, you know, they tried to send me to rehab, uh, but my daddy said I'm fine. And you sort of see the context of that line and you think, oh, gosh, like that is heartbreaking actually uh yeah. you know the dad was kind of riding the coattails and you know riding the wave of fame and success and mm-hmm. and uh and wouldn't let her get the help that she needed yeah and um yeah i mean that's what i took from it but it was just yeah, yeah. it's like music is so fascinating to me because i try to pass this on to the to the the kids here you know mm-hmm. a lot of the famous musicians that we've ever had in our lifetime when they were growing up in their formative years, they were made fun of, picked on because they weren't popular. They weren't athletic. They weren't cool. Mm -hmm. They had a hard time fitting in and all of that angst and pain created the music that now you guys love. Mm. So my, my favorite singer and band is tool and the lead singer is Maynard Mm -hmm. Keenan. Mm -hmm. So he did a documentary called from blood into wine because he's also a winemaker. Mm-hmm. And there's this segment in the in his documentary where he's sitting at a diner and it's the movie moves in the documentary moves in and out of him his dry, very sarcastic humor and radical sincerity and seriousness. Mm-hmm. And he he says, you know, I write these songs to help me move past my traumas and pain. Once I have moved past the the trauma and the pain, from this song, I no longer sing it. Interesting. And and he goes on to say that I believe that we lose artists like Amy Winehouse, mm-hmm. like Kurt Cobain, Jimi Hendrix, mm-hmm. Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, mm-hmm. bizarrely at about the same age yeah. too, which yeah. is really really That's strange. strange. <laughs> and and according to him, you know, all twenty eight, mm-hmm. Saturn comes around every twenty eight years, and it's a rebirth of your life, mm-hmm. right? So. He says that it's because people are too concerned about staying that same person to stay famous and popular to that group of people. They don't evolve and move past their pain and go to the next level. So he gets criticized because he no longer plays certain songs mm. because he, those songs no longer serve him well. Mm. So he keeps evolving and he keeps shifting the set list towards things that he either hasn't worked through yet or he's working through with you uh in the in the audience and it like i think that that's brilliantly stated is that a lot of these people that implode mm. they're stuck in that moment it kind of reminds of that song that you two sang about the guy from depeche mode stuck in a moment and you can't get out of it uh right. yeah 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 is that the the singer from Depeche Mode had a, had, a, had a depression issue, and he couldn't get himself out of that place, mm. no matter how hard they tried. 
And that's what makes music so interesting is like it has the ability to help you move past yeah. pain. But some of the artists, because that's what made them famous, right. they're afraid to move out of that space and evolve. Well, and I th- I think, that's a very interesting dilemma. Yeah, and I think that that's sort of, you know, really sort of an interesting uniqueness to to music and albums in particular is they're almost like kind of little chapters of where you were at that moment. And, and you know, I see it uh, from, you know, sorry to bring it back to brand again, but yeah. uh, but you see it a lot with, um, you know, with Taylor Swift, for example, I think yeah. is a really good example of, um, you know, from an archetypal, a Jungian and arch- archetypal point of view, you can see her moving around the map as she sort of is on this journey and, and her fans get to sort of like come on this journey with her. And, and I think that, um, you know, the way that she expressed it in her documentary was about um, how she feels as a female artist that she needs to reinvent herself and be shiny and new every time she presents herself to wow. radio. Uh, and she feels that that, um, that um, uh, male artists don't necessarily have that problem. You know, they can do the same thing and keep going. Hmm. And And I think that, you know, I'm sure that, you know, the best artistry really sort of comes from a truth. So I guess... You know, it's. I think I prefer her way of doing it in a way. I mean, yeah. I think that you could say, was well, that being inconsistent with the brand? Um, I think that, again, unique to artists, you know, so, you know, with consumer brands, they can kind of be pretty resolute. They can just sort of, you know, sure. Jack Daniels is Jack Daniels now, as well, you know, sort of Jack Daniels will be in 10 years' time, more or less. Sure. Um, Whereas an artist is is aging and growing and and going through all of these various different life stages, and so the brand can't stand still. Like mm-hmm. it's just not practical. Uh, it's going to be inauthentic. I mean, I think we, you know we've perhaps all seen, you know, sort of older artists that maybe think they're still young and, and it doesn't always work out that well. Yeah, no um, whereas if they age gracefully and kind of like you know become something different. Uh, you know, and, and evolve and change, um, you know, and find something new in themselves. I think that that's probably more authentic. And, uh, and uh, you know, I guess authenticity is one of those things that's, you know, um, you know, I'd always be looking for that in a brand, really, to be honest. Yeah, I so think it's true. pretty universal. Like that, there's one guy that strikes me as the person who constantly reinvented himself, and although he's no longer with us for other reasons, I think Prince was the closest thing to the male version of Taylor Swift. Right, yeah. yeah. You know, he really changed his his way yeah even to the point where he changed his name from a name to a sign right and then, innovative and then yeah exactly very <laughs> very much so he wanted to constantly evolve mm-hmm. and although he 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 died you know maybe five years ago four years ago mm. radically talented radically yeah. talented yeah well bowie dave bowie oh yeah no like, kidding he was very much a sort of reinvention and you know from what i've heard there's you know Part of that was sort of out of, you know, fear in a way. He was kind of almost creating characters to sort of overcome his stage fright in a way. Um, interesting. So he'd embody the the character and um, and the persona, and then that would be his way of actually kind of, you know, deflecting it from being himself in a way. Fascinating. And, and so it's almost like a kind of, uh, you know, alter ego, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, um, but yeah, I mean, he was extraordinary. Yeah, they're just yeah, Prince Bowie. They're just extraordinary creative people, and you know, operating you know in a creative realm that's beyond perhaps where I am. But the uh, um, yeah, I mean, just uh, 
phenomenal the talents and and obviously yeah they they sadly passed away in the same year as yeah, well didn't they no kidding 2016 or something favorite um, sports team when you were growing up ah yes manchester united man you yes um i mean i think um i was very fortunate my mum was born in manchester and uh she said that uh she once dated a City fan who took her to a City game and she hated it. So from then on, she was always a United <laughs> fan. And so she indoctrinated me very early on, even though I was growing up in the South, which, uh, you know, is not uncommon. <laughs> for, uh, but, um, uh, but yeah, the, um, you know, I, I got to see the kind of the real formative years, the Eric Cantona years of Manchester mm-hmm. United and, and the class of 92, Beckham and yeah. all of that. Um, gosh, I mean, those they've just given me the most amazing emotional journey in the way that sports can only do. You no know? kidding. Um, and uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Going through a little bit of a you know, transition stage at the moment. So uh, Yeah, yeah. now Man City's got the upper hand. Well, is- yeah, it helps if you've got... Petro millions behind you, but we're not going to split hairs, are we? Yeah. <laughs> Who was your favorite player? Um, it's got to be Cantona. I mean, yeah. he just, you know, he sort of transformed, I guess, the idea of what, you know, what a, an individual can do to a team, I guess, for me. It was just sort of, you know, they had a fairly solid team and then they picked up this player from a rival team, from Leeds United. Um, and he was the most extraordinary arrogant man. Um, you know, he would walk onto um, onto the pitch, and he was the only guy with a collar up on his shirt. And and he'd walk out with his chest raised high, and, and he had this wonderful sort of Gallic stare um, and sort of Roman nose. And and you're just kind of like, this man is a mountain. No one's going to kind of, you know, and he sort of exuded this amazing confidence that then spilled into all of these kind of younger players who are in their sort of formative years. And and he just transformed the place. I wow. mean, I think it was, um, you know, and then, you know, surrounded with that was amazing controversy as well. So he famously um, kung fu kicked a fan um, who, after he'd been sent off in a game and... Uh, and so, I mean, he had this very sort of fiery temperament and this guy in the, in the stands had, had been shouting some racial abuse at him. So he kung fu kicked him. I mean, like a proper WWE <laughs> style kind of two footer. And and no one could believe it. And obviously he was banned for sort of nine months or so, yeah. something like that. Um, and then the extraordinary arrogance of the man, it was amazing. There was a Nike commercial that came out just before he was coming back Um and it was a very sort of like high grain, black and white, right in his face uh, commercial where he st- stares in the camera and says, um, you know, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to apologize. And you're like, oh, OK, you're right. He's, he's feeling contrition for you. He said, there was a match last year where the ball came to me. I was in the six yard box and I didn't score the goal. For this, I must apologise. And then he didn't mention a single thing about the kung fu kick. He went through every single like header he missed or a penalty he missed or what have you. Never apologised for the kung fu kung fu kick and and then left it at that. Mike awesome. kind of thing. And it was just like amazing. The arrogance of the man, just phenomenal. I love that. <laughs> How about golf? Did you was golf ever played much of a role in your life? Uh, so yeah, I mean it's. Um, it was definitely sort of a way to kind of connect with uh, my dad and like, you know, I used to go to the driving range a lot with my dad and, um, 
um, and then in school, and it was funny because I, I I sort of had these hand me down uh, um, uh, clubs from um, from my grandfather's, like you know, and uh, my grandfather was Scottish, and uh, he had these amazing old kind of blades and hickory shafts, and you know, oh, pretty man. much like a sort of I think it was a bamboo shaft putter or something like that. I can't even remember. Um, but it, you know, I showed them to my coaches in school and they were just like, I did not even know that these things still existed. I mean, yeah, they're sort of held together with tape. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, obviously my, my game transformed when I had got, put, got some new, uh, new clubs, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, um, I feel like it's just such a, uh, an interesting sport in the sense of, um, you know, how much of the mind plays a role in it and how you know most of the battle is in your mind on on the golf course you know yeah. you're not really playing your opponent <laughs> it's just really playing yourself a lot of the time yeah and then you're always battling like the shot you think that somebody else would hit versus the shot that you're able to hit right and then we can't help but put on our superman cape and try to be a superhero and, and then it ultimately Right, yeah. It doesn't work out, and then we get mad at ourselves because it's a mental mistake, not a physical mistake. Right. And then the emotional downward spiral of poor decision-making. <laughs> yeah. I tell people all the time, I said, as long as you def clearly define what kind of golfer you are, you're going to be okay. There are what I call hero golfers, or the people that are there, they're going to shoot anywhere from 88 to 105, mm -hmm. but they're actually there to just hit that one, one or shot. two shots yeah. that are amazing. Yeah. So every hole they hit driver, no matter whether the driver is the right player or not, every flag stick they're flying at, whether it's a three wood or a sure. sand wedge, yeah. and every birdie putt or every putt is charged in like Arnold Palmer would charge it in, and it that always leads to higher scores than they should have shot. Right. Or you are a person who's all about the score yeah. and playing the best golf that you can play. But it's the people who want to play for score that can't help themselves but the dangling carrot try to hit the shot they shouldn't hit. Yeah. Or the person who gets really upset for hitting three wood out of a divot from 281 all over water that hits it in the water, obviously, <laughs> and he gets upset. And like, why would you get upset? I mean, you knew that there was, <laughs> was very that little. Was a, yeah, that no was, chance. Yeah. But people don't, they, 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 they try to burn the end of both candles mm -hmm. and they end up ultimately ruining their experience because they either play one way, but don't stick to that method or they play the other way, but don't stick to that method. They kind of get caught in between right. yeah. and they, they miss the whole And you have to listen journey. to those voices along the, the whole of the course really, <laughs> don't you? I mean, I'm getting, I'm getting flashbacks now to my grandmother who is, you know, she avid golf player um and she would always say percentage golf percentage golf you know so always go for the percentages so like you know don't go for the money you know the amazing shot you know go yeah. for the uh go for the hero shot go for the you know just go for the uh you know the safe shot every time and uh and then but you know every now and again you suddenly think oh, I, I'm, you know, I'm tiger Woods. i could do this yeah <laughs> and i think that much like in life you play the percentages right up until you have the opportunity to do something special. And then you have to think, how many times in my lifetime am I going to get a chance to do something mm -hmm. truly special? And that's when, that is when you take the chance. Mm -hmm. So there's a very famous guy in golf now named Scott Fawcett, who's invented truly a genius. And I think he's been the most impactful person in golf since the technology called TrackMan mm. came out, mm -hmm. right? And his whole theory is based off percentage play. Okay. And keeping your expectation values completely correct throughout. 
mm. from first tee shot to the last putt. This is the percentage of this is when you hit driver. This is when you don't hit driver. This is why you aim to the middle of the green this far with a four iron versus this far with a pitching wedge. Mm. And it's very detailed and he's amazing. Mm. But one of the places that he finds himself in argument, especially with the great tour players, is that the great tour players say you don't get that many opportunities to win on mm. the PGA Tour or on mm -hmm. the European Tour. Sure. So anytime you find yourself with a chance to win, you have to be willing to hit the shot that will win it for you mm. with no regard to failure because this is your opportunity. Right, yeah. And so in life, we get, all, we, get, we get a handful of those moments where you get an opportunity and are you going to take it mm. or are you going to play the percentages? Mm -hmm. So a lot of the time, people play the percentages until they're 60 and they look back and see the opportunities that fell through their fingertips because they didn't take a chance mm. because it was outside the percentage. Yeah. So there's that weird and delicate balance that we're all facing and the golf course allows us a game atmosphere to learn the values of life. Mm. Yeah. And, and to me, I find it so interesting to me of what I've been able, I've won 14 times as a professional. And I remember vividly in 2001, David Duvall won the Open Championship. And he, he says that in every tournament, there's a shot that you have to hit if you're going to win. Yeah. You just have to hit it. And his was in the rough. I think it was on 14. He had a one-shot lead. And it was kind of a, a lie that was kind of iffy. And he chose to go for broke and hit it to like a foot and made birdie, and it totally changed the game. And he said that in all actuality, everybody – that wins has that moment somewhere on Sunday where it's the shot they have to hit you. It's a make or break shot mm -hmm. and you have to stand in there with conviction and intention to pull it off. Yeah. So then I look back on my life and I'm thinking about all the opportunities that I've had. And I grew up with a father that told me to, you know, say yes. And if you don't know how to do it, figure it out. Right. Yeah. You know, don't turn down great opportunities. Yeah. Because they don't come that often. Mm -hmm. So I'm a, I'm a yes sayer. And many times I had no idea how to do it, mm -hmm. but I wasn't afraid yeah. of doing it. I think it's the best attitude to have, to be honest, isn't it? It's yeah. And I try, I try to, I'm always trying to get the kids on the golf team, boy or girl, to take that mentality of, we don't know when that moment's going to be, mm -hmm. but always feel like you're going to say yes and figure out how to do it. Mm -hmm. It's a way better life mm -hmm. than to, oh, that's a little bit, I don't know, I'm a little. And, you know, if you don't, you know, succeed with it, you'll learn a hell of a lot along the way. So, that's right. you know. And it almost always leads to another opportunity. Exactly right, yeah. Not necessarily and, where you thought it was going to be. And that's exactly, you know, so that's, my, that's one of my favorite things to, to get people to do. What's the best golf course that you, you believe is in, in England? Oh, <laughs> well, it's hard to go past, uh, you know, um, uh, St. Andrews, I guess, isn't it? I mean, I, I think uh, the thing I'm intrigued by with St. Andrews is I hear that it's actually the modern course is backwards. Yeah. And I'm kind of very intrigued by an earth, like how on earth that would work. Well, the... mainly because it was designed so that when you played it in its original intent, that the bunkers were invisible. Oh, <laughs> that sounds very devious. <laughs> and so they, they flipped it around, and I don't remember exactly when. Um, 
But now, obviously, the bunkers are visible from where you're playing. Right. But when the original intent was to play the golf course and all of the hazards, you didn't know that they were there. Right. A little evil. So, yeah. So, yeah. If it weren't hard enough that you're battling with the Scottish weather. <laughs> By the <laughs> way, so we've true. also got some surprises up our sleeve. I love it. <laughs> How about in London? What's your favorite course in London? Um, I'm trying to think now. I mean, uh, there's Wentworth not too far from yeah. Um But... Um, uh, to be honest, you know, I would always be kind of playing. Uh, I never sort of consistently went to a club. I would always kind of go for pickup games with with friends and uh-huh. things. And it was always the sociability of of golf that I was always kind of drawn to the, the camaraderie of it. Sure. And uh, um, actually, um, one of my most sort of recent fun experiences with golf was um, uh, a friend of mine was getting married in Thailand, and oh, uh, wow. um, and so a load of us kind of went over to Thailand and uh, played a golf course there and it was i mean i I'd never laughed so much on a golf course that the, the moment we arrived in order to speed up the play they give every single one of you a caddy um and they will drive you on you know on the course and and the caddies are kind of the expert they're, they're choosing the clubs for you pretty much and and they're, and they're all talking with each other and they're laughing at you when you're hitting bad <laughs> shots and they're joking with themselves and and some of them are real characters some of them very sort of disciplinarians and telling you off if you're using the wrong club and then there are other caddies that were uh, just laughing you know brazenly in your face when you got it wrong and and it, so the, the it was potluck which caddy you ended up with um and honestly i've never played a course like that i've never stopped laughing so much i mean it was just an amazing experience one of the greatest memories you know, something <laughs> yeah. like that's so good that is so great well uh another part of my show is about wine but i also have come to appreciate that not everybody loves wine but like when you think about sitting down and having a having a drink with friends mm. are you a wine guy or a, a spirits guy are you a beer guy what's your what are your go-to chill down moments of just kind of you know kind of falling into a chair and just chilling for a while yeah i mean obviously sort of being a brit um you know the pub grabbing a beer sitting in the pub you know, sitting in a beer garden or something like that. Yeah. Um, that was kind of the default. I mean, obviously, you know, you saw in London, you know, can't go 20 meters without there being a pub. <laughs> so um, true. And, um, and honestly, you know, you know, growing up in, you know, sort of in my sort of 20s being in London um, and being able to, you know, constantly be meeting your friends in the pub in the local area was just, you know, such an amazing kind of release and uh yeah um and so yeah so um but certainly sort of you know wine is definitely now kind of more on the on the list certainly a muriel rioja for example is uh, like something uh-huh. <laughs> that i go for um but um because i feel like they're branding it specifically for me so they're like, <laughs> very kind of them, yeah exactly right it's a very sort of narrow audience i'm afraid for them but um <laughs> But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, what's been fun actually is sort of discovering. Um, you know, we don't get a lot of California, Californian wines in in the UK so much. I mean, obviously with France being on the doorstep, it's sure. not surprising. But um, uh, but yeah, certainly I'm starting to kind of get to know. Um, yeah, and I haven't really sort of got uh, uh, had a chance to kind of explore it in great detail. But um, but yeah, getting to know some American wines is kind of definitely. I'm itching to get to. Uh, 
out to wine country and oh, so, man. it's spectacular yeah so are you kind of uh you know californian all the way or are you kind of like yeah I'm, <laughs> i haven't really tasted oregon I, there's a lot of sweet ones in iowa that my wife's from iowa and there's a very very sweet wines that come from there that i'm not so sure about <laughs> Some, I, I took a, a class in mississippi state that was called wine appreciation mm. so we studied uh all wines from regions so we started in italy went to france did a lot of Europe of some Alsatian wines, which I would have mm. was not even prepared to study Alsace, you know, and I was mm. like, wow. Mm -hmm. And then we went to Australia and then South America, and then we ended in America. Mm. And I would say that I'm more inclined to tell you that I like certain grapes or blends than I am to say a region in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, I've, I would probably say that I have the most vast amount of knowledge in Bordeaux blends from Bordeaux, mm. America, and the, you know, a lot of regions have, because Bordeaux is so profoundly popular, mm -hmm. everybody's trying to make their version of Aubryon or their version of Latour or mm -hmm. their version of Lafitte mm -hmm. or Margot or what have you. But I mean, to me, I, as I took that class, I was so unprepared for the love that I was going to have for the science of the food and wine, the art of the food and wine, mm. and the life of the food and the wine. Mm. And it's turned into like this, it's one of my outlets, mm -hmm. is that I, I love wine, but then I also love to make the food that brings out better characteristics in mm -hmm. the wine, which mm -hmm. also then brings out yeah, the better characteristics of the key. food. Yeah, exactly. So... I would say, like, I, I'm a Bordeaux blend guy, but I've, I've really gotten in, into Pinot as well. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm really fascinated because a lot of the great wines in New Zealand and in Oregon are clones of the greatest wines in Burgundy. Mm. And so much so that I've had the exact wine, the clones, are the exact same of an Oregon wine and a Burgundy wine. Oh, wow. So you would think by DNA they would have to be almost identical in taste and they could not be farther apart. Sure. Wow. So to then understand how climate, soil mm -hmm. and the winemaking process mm -hmm. play a role in it lets you know how much art is actually into the chemistry mm. of the wine. Mm -hmm. And that then makes me veer off even further down the road of I I think that's something I would like to get involved in as I as I get to the point where I can't teach 2000 golf lessons a year. Mm -hmm. And I would love to be involved in the process of being a, a in blending mm. wines. I find great fascination in creating the art of different wines and how they independently are awesome, but when they're put together, mm. create a whole different. Creates a whole yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a mastery to that. Isn't yeah. So that's kind of like that's where my brain likes to go. Yeah. So you know, I, I've you know between the human performance side of life like golf took me into a place that i wanted to understand what made tiger woods so unbelievable was not his physical gifts it was his mental gifts mm. and his ability to allow himself to have access to his talent instead of getting in its way right and what i in that research i later found that that holds true in every part of our life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So learning how to get out of your way is a trainable mm. device mm -hmm. that as soon as you figure out how to do it in one part of your life, you can access it in all parts of your mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. So it's just trying to find the right vehicle where my 
client is vulnerable vulnerable enough to experience it. Interesting. And so I have technologies that allow me to kind of sneak up on you, hack hack it. One of them is called Focus Band, where there, it's the band that it actually measures your brain waves, so it lets you know what part of your brain's active. So, cr- creatively, you know, athletically, the right side of your brain needs to be on while performing golf. Yeah. The left side of your brain needs to be on if you're trying to build a skyscraper. Right. Okay. So I, I remember sort of hearing something about this actually in, in uh, some sort of neurist uh, studies they were doing with um, people who were in comas, I think, to sort of understand if they could sort of, you know, understand what was being heard and, and kind of see if their brain was res- responding to it. And and they divided, I always thought it's just a, a hilarious way of dividing it, was tennis and maths. That was it. <laughs> yeah. So they were asked to think about tennis, think about maths, and each hemisphere would kind of light up accordingly. And so I love the idea that everything in in the brain's world is divided into tennis or maths. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. and, and what they what they show is that like the just to, to talk golf for mm. just a second is that they have to work together. Mm. The, they're interconnected. Like their their impulses are going back and forth. Right, so when you walk up to your golf ball, let's just, just say a tee shot, and you walk up onto the first tee at St. Andrews, and you begin the deduction process. Okay, I have literally 300 yards of fairway between the, eight, the edge of the 18th fairway mm-hmm. and the edge of the first fairway. Mm-hmm. I have a little bit of water I got to deal with on the right, mm-hmm. but the farther I hit it left, the worse angle I have mm-hmm. to the green. Mm-hmm. So that is a left brain right. deduction. Yeah, you're creating a strategy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, after you've created your strategy, I'm going to hit three wood. Yeah, I pick the spot wherever. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now you go. Okay. What do I need to feel to make that shot occur? So that was what I call rehearsals. Mm. So you visualize mm-hmm. what you want to do. You rehearse the motion required to make the visualization come to life. Interesting. And then you commit to the rehearsal, and you should attempt to hit the golf ball within eight seconds of the time of the rehearsal because you have the ability to capture 92% of the feel within eight seconds. But at the 10-second mark, it's already down to 50%. Oh, wow. So the the speed of play... Yeah is you can take as much time as you want within reason without being too slow. <laughs> but all of the time should be taking in the left brain deduction. Mm-hmm. What do I have? What's my lie? What's the wind? What's the shot that I'm going to play? Flip it to what do I have to feel to make that assertion come to life? Mm. And then step in and hit the shot so that no doubt creeps in. Amazing. And to be able to do that quickly. Mm-hmm. There is... That's the that's the key. Now, understanding how you do that in building a skyscraper is the first thing you have to have is the vision. Like, what do I want it to look like? Mm-hmm. Right brain. Mm-hmm. And then crazy. you you bring it all down to what do I need mm-hmm. to do to make this happen? Yeah. There's so they're intermingling, and then the math to make it happen, and then it's all left brain. Yeah. So the everything coincides with each other, but in different stages of the performance, mm. 
one's more suited for the for the task at hand than the other. Mm-hmm. So it's just all about learning how to navigate it. And as soon as you learn how to navigate the brain, mm-hmm. you have power. Right. And that's the that's the really cool. That's really cool. Because that's what I love to do. Because as soon as I can show you that in golf, I can show you that in an interview. I can show you how to do it in a sure. book. I can show you how to do it yeah. in other parts of your life. And the uh, I'm I'm a I'm 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 a talented player. Yeah. But my dad was a coach. My dad was my coach for almost everything that I did. Mm. And I am a coach by nature. Right. I realized while I was trying to play, I was spending more time trying to help others than I was taking care of my business. Right. And so it was a hard, it was, it was as, as hard as I make it sound because it's not very easy for me to play the golf that I can still play and know that I'm actually just coaching it, not trying to perform. Right. But deep, deep down in the recesses of my mind and my heart, I know that I made the right decision because every time I put myself back into the competitive mindset, yeah. I'm not hardwired to be that selfish. Right. I can't. I don't. My mind. I can't go there mm. because I'm more apt to want to make other people's experience great too. So, do you get equal satisfaction from winning the tournament yourself, or seeing one of your students win tournament because of perhaps some of the coaching and work that you've done? I say there's without a doubt. I get more satisfaction when my players win than I did with really? myself. Yeah. I mean, I've had a couple of big wins um, for me. I mean, nothing on TV or anything sure, like sure, that, sure. but yeah. certainly playing in events where I wasn't the best player, not supposed to have won. And that is interesting to me because to me, one of the interesting pieces about my performance life is that I've never lost when I, I was told that I couldn't win. I've never lost when I was told that I couldn't win. And I've never won when they said there was no chance that you could lose. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah. And many of my, like my greatest win was in, in, a, in, a, in an event in which there were people that play on TV. Mm. And I remember as I was getting loose, one of the professionals that I taught questioned why in the world was I there? <laughs> Why are you playing? You can't win this. Why don't you just go? <laughs> and the that is what flips my mind into a performance overdrive. Interesting. I'm driven to prove people wrong. Right. And in performance, but that doesn't even come into my mind as a coach. Yes, of course. I yeah. don't do I don't that never even crosses my mind. But that is the bridge to my greatness as a player is so, to be poked. So were you sort of like Jordan and sort of trying to find reasons to be kind of I know, should poked? Have. I like, never did. I never did, but I look back on it now and I know that there are people that have mentored me that recognize that that was my hot button. Right. And they would purposely do something like that before I teed off. I mean, just think. And I, now I, I recognize the power. So Michael Jordan talked about it in his yeah. last dance that every game, yeah, he had to find something to hate. Yeah, yeah. had to have, he had to have something that drove him. And I just find like, and that was that when I watched that segment. I think it was segment seven. Yeah. I'm like, wow, <laughs> I didn't do that, right? Because it didn't it didn't matter to me like it mattered to him, right? I was more into elevating others. Gotcha. And 
that's you know that's the mom my mom in me mm. my dad was a coach but my mom is an elevator mm. mm-hmm. she's always trying to lift people up my mom has a radical gift of forgiveness <laughs> a radical gift of kindness and giving yes. and i had the blend my DNA comes from a, a a dad who loved to coach and a mom who loved to love. Mm, mm-hmm. And together, that's me. It's probably why you're yeah, such a sort of yeah. successful coach. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's so it took courage to end any ideas of playing. As soon as I figured out how to play, it took me a while to figure out how to play because mm-hmm. nobody in my family's really ever played golf. Mm-hmm. And I learned it on the fly. And as I got out of college, I wasn't even close to being good enough in college. As I got to be about 25, things started to get very clear to me. Like, oh, man, I can really play this game. Mm-hmm. But I became – I got too sidetracked because I wasn't able to stay focused on me. Mm-hmm. And I just find that it, it's interesting. That's why I love to do what I do because there are people that are out there that are tremendously gifted yeah, and they're in that same boat. And I try to help them make their decisions on who they want to be mm. and, and the authenticity of being okay with telling yourself the truth and not getting the answer that maybe people think you want. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and that's a, it's a challenging place for people. And I just find it that's my that's my why. Yes, yeah. is to figure out help people with me. Like I'm as I'm helping them, they're helping me simultaneously. Right. And I, that's the beauty of. And that's what I mean. I yeah, I mean, it's sort of I see some of that in you know, kind of what I do as well. Is that you know I get enormous amount of satisfaction from you know seeing people you know suddenly you know, with the liberation, kind of understanding that they, you know, how they can build their own brand and how they can kind of make, uh, you know, make something happen for themselves. You know, they've, you know, they've, they've got this wonderful idea, whatever it is. Um, but then, you know, when I can like realize it for them in a way that they sort of never could have imagined um, and, they, and they know all the theory that went behind it, is 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 right and good for them mm-hmm. um then it just kind of liberates them so much makes them so happy and, and i think that's kind of that's definitely you know seriously rewarding you know and you know way more rewarding than uh uh you know doing something for you know brand for myself yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean it's so true um so true what's the what's the best book you've ever read oh um there's a question um, I think I, I mean certainly well from this kind of you know sort of psychology point of view I'd say that that's uh, thinking fast and slow is fantastic um, but um, but I think um, I don't know the one that sort of I hold with me I, I've always liked kind of you know narratives and, and comedy and and so Catch 22 for some strange reason has always stuck with me as something that I just love the kind of the dark sense of humor of it and uh and the sort of nuance of it, and I guess it's never really sort of like quite translated into film very well. That, mm-hmm. but uh, um, but yeah, I did uh, certainly love that. Um, <laughs> but uh, how about yourself? Well, I've, it's so funny. I tell I, one of my favorite jokes on myself is that from my school years to college, I think I read three books out of the hundred that I needed to read, mm. and I've probably read seven hundred and eighty or more, so maybe seven eighty three mm-hmm. since I graduated. Wow. A lot of performance books have been 
eye-opening to me. Right. Stealing Fire by Stephen Kotler, which was the, you know, Stephen Kotler is the, the, the flow research flow guy. guy. Yeah. So mm-hmm. his first book on flow was called The Rise of Superman, which was the study mm-hmm. of human greatness. Mm-hmm. Stealing Fire became very interesting because what they learned in the process of finding flow is that flow is the most addictive substance in the world because every chemical that is sold illegally on the street <laughs> is stored inside your head in a clean version. Right. And all of those things together is what put you in the flow state. So you're addicted to one of them. So every time somebody comes off of flow, mm. they are they go into a level of depression. Withdrawal sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. So their, their second book was about the recognizing that the most important piece to date on understanding radical, awesome human performance is to help people come down. Mm. It's not so much teaching them how to get there. It's to have them prepared to land because it is a very come down, depressive withdrawal state Mm. because your brain has been flooded with all of these chemicals that put you in the greatest frame of mind and performance state that you can be in. Mm -hmm. And as soon as it's gone, it not only is vacant and empty, mm. but you're longing for it again like a drug. Right, of course. Yeah. And it's n- not easy. I mean, once you learn how to do it, it gets easier. But people at the very beginning of trying to find it, they try too hard to get there and they can't find it. And then the frustration of the withdrawal makes it more challenging. So, Out of interest, does he talk to whether, you know, so obviously. You know, you hear with people who, you know, because obviously it's a common story that you hear of sort of, you know, rock stars and comedians and things like that. They're sort of like, they get such a high of being on stage and then, you know, sort of naturally gravitate towards kind of chemical versions of that that then kind of try to get them to a similar sort of state. But obviously, you know, over time they need more and more of that in order to kind of get to something like that state. Mm -hmm. But in the flow example, do they, do they, you know, is it not enough? You know, do they have to go further in order to find that flow again, or is it kind of... No, there are flow triggers, So, which is why you know, surfers yeah. usually die surfing. Right. Because it's the level of danger yeah. that flips the brain into hyper-awareness, right. which, which then yeah. slows down time, yeah. simultaneously speeding up time. So you lose reality and time Mm. so things are happening radically slow Mm -hmm. while also happening radically fast Mm. so like they can feel their toes like subtly shift on the board Mm. while they're doing 93 miles per hour down an 80 foot wave so they have optimum control yeah of a radically out of control situation. Heightened awareness. So that level of heightened awareness, which makes it very challenging for golf. Golf is difficult to find flow state because it's not dangerous enough, fast moving enough. So it creates either a moment, like a major golf championship, Mm -hmm. history, or you're playing a place in such beauty and magnificence, or you're with a group of people Mm -hmm. that are elevating the whole moment, like your moment Mm -hmm. in Thailand, Mm -hmm. that you were in a place in that moment you'll never forget because it brought you Mm -hmm. to that state. So what you're saying is we need more danger in golf. Are we saying right. more alligators on the course? That's right. Florida. So, that's right. So <laughs> when you think about, like a perfect example is Eddie George, another person that I've had the opportunity to interview, played for the Titans. 
you know, so he he played at arguably one of the five greatest colleges for football at Ohio State. Mm-hmm. Wins the Heisman Trophy, and literally from age nineteen to age thirty seven, mm-hmm. his identity as. Heisman Trophy winner, one of the greatest running backs of all time. Mm. And then all of a sudden, when you're no longer running out of that tunnel, mm. there's a gigantic vacancy sure. of, am I only a football player? And I don't get that thrill anymore. And he had a hard adjustment. And then he found his saving grace in acting. And he became the first African-American mm. Caesar oh. in Chicago. Interesting. So he did, he found his new way out. Right. And he, that then liberated him from the, the prison of his mind about he was, nobody looks at me as Eddie George the person. They only know me as Eddie George the right. football and player. And it probably helped him that it was so incongruous with the previous. 100%. Yeah. So I know that it's a, a powerful piece. So I mean, that's what I, I'm, I'm paying attention to is that I, 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 I'm in search of, helping people find the state, mm. but I also have to help them learn how to navigate it when they come down off this place. Mm. And then it, once you know how to find it and you know how to come down and not go into depression and or withdrawals of it and search for one individual chemical mm-hmm. yeah. to help you cheat code, get there, but it actually ends up destroying you is now you have the cycle, you know how to find it, you know how to come off of it. And now you get on, you start to try to create it as often as you can because you have the ability to get it and to get off of it. Right. Well, certainly most of my rounds of golf end up in depression anyway. So uh, <laughs> I think uh, I'm just missing out on the high on the, on the on the front side of it. I think I may as well kind of you know get both sides of the coin. So funny. <laughs> so that's probably that book is probably one of my favorite books because it was a fast read mm-hmm. and it's really intriguing. I, but I probably yeah. have 50 books that are so like Limitless by Jim Quick, which is like mm. s- learning how to speed read and speed memorize. Wow. To uh, to have a greater memory and greater access to information so you can plow through information. Mm. I think that guy's a genius. Mm-hmm. And I, I try to implement more and more of that in my life because now I can read a, a book in about a day and a half. Wow. And, and, I, and I know that he could read a book in an hour. So he's Gosh. super talented at it. But like when I read a book for the first time, I'll mow through it. And then within the content, I find a book like that, Limitless, mm. and I have to slow read it because there's so much, much information in it information, yeah. that I, 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 I buy into it. But I mean, that, Atomic Habits is Unbelievable by James Clear. Mm-hmm. Well, and most of it's performance. I, I would say Dan Brown's my favorite nonfiction guy, Da Vinci Code. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that he's my favorite you know, sort of fiction of, writer. Uh, yeah, page-turning pace on that sort of, yeah. Favorite movie? Ooh, there's a tough question. I, I love um, The Lives of Others. I don't know if you've seen that. I have not ever seen that. So that is, um, um, it's a German film set in kind of East Germany, and it's about a playwright guy who um, is having to sort of stick within the the sort of limitations of what he's allowed to kind of write about, but he wants to kind of, you know, rebel against that. And uh, a sort of Stasi person starts spying on him and it becomes about the relationship between those two. Mm -hmm. They're not sort of, um, you know, physically connected, but it's just one of those ones that sort of, you know, I love kind of contextual pieces and sort of, and obviously, you know, having seen some of like, you know, sort of Soviet, Mm-hmm. era stuff in in moscow when i used to visit my you know my dad and stuff it's sort of i don't know it all kinds of kind of 
flooding back in a way and uh um and it's sort of really interesting to sort of um to see that and to see that the sort of beautiful kind of relationships in that uh, but how about yourself what's uh for the longest time if you go back through my my annals here i've always thought that gladiator oh uh, yeah was the greatest movie ever and i've i threw out there were there are four movies that i hold Great because there's eight diff eight i mean in, in each different category so mm. like but i believe now after watching it a couple more times i believe that gladiator is awesome and it's my second favorite movie but the greatest movie of all time is forrest gump Oh, I love Forrest Gump. Yes, <laughs> that movie is, has so many layers of it's intrigue to it. Isn't it? Yeah. it really is, um, mainly because I have a, a soft spot for people that have dis- disabilities. Not that he has it completely, sure, sure, sure. but he has he's limited in some capabilities, mm. but yet he overcomes them and he does it in such a genuinely beautiful way. Right, and then all of the side stories of the love and and war and. Yeah, you know, it's the journey of an innocent in various different contexts, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's amazing. I think that... Um, um, I think, yeah, the the, the scene where, uh, you know, like his kid gets on the bus and it turns out he's really smart and it, like that just tears me off every yeah, time. Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. I think Goodwill Hunting is amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah. And Wedding Crashers. If you need a good oh, laugh, yeah, I've yeah. never laughed harder than Wedding Crashers. So that's my big four. Those right. are my pillars. Yes. But uh, after watching Gladiator twice this year and Forrest Gump twice this year, Forrest Gump has just a touch more yeah. for me than Gladiator. But man, Gladiator has the greatest moment of any movie ever, <laughs> which is when Joaquin Phoenix comes down into the into the pit and asks Gladiator to take off his helmet. Uh, yes, and uh, it, that's that to me. Anytime I need a little, just a little something to get me over the over the top, uh, <laughs> that one minute of, in twelve seconds, unbelievable is uh, is so great. But yeah, have you ever been to Rome and sort of seen the Colosseum? And... Mm, but I, I'm, I'm heavily interested in going to. Italy. Oh, it's just Italy. stunning. Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy to see how just I mean how mind blowingly old those buildings are and yeah. they're still there it's just unreal it really is it's um, like the, the like between Greece and Rome mm. I'm fascinated by how history has been and, and Egypt as well Stonehenge. history is history <laughs> is preserved in those places better than than most places yeah and to be able to go to the Colosseum and think about all the things that have happened so long ago and it's yeah. still there yeah that's a but also to see, you know, essentially, it's, you know, it's a stadium. It kind of like we haven't changed that much. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. So true. It's just they wear pads now. <laughs> no, no kidding. Well, final final question for you. You get one round of golf for the rest of your life. Mm. Who are you and three others? Oh gosh. And what golf course are you playing? Three others and what golf course are we playing? Um, gosh. Well, I'd certainly need someone who's who's going to be able to teach me where I'm going wrong. <laughs> so, uh, um, yeah, I, I think, yeah. Um, well, certainly, you yeah, my brother, I'd love my brother to be with me. Um, you yeah, know, and, uh, and then I think, um, gosh, I always, I always sort of, uh, yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't think to be honest. I mean, it'd probably be... Uh, um, Probably an artist of some description. Um, um, so yeah, I'm just sort of uh, yeah. I, I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank. Actually, to be honest, I mean, what, it's, what, for golf, me it's, what golf course would you want it to be? Golf course. Um, again, I think for me, it could be 
you know, I don't have like the sort of emotional affinity with one particular golf course. To be honest, I think it would always be about the people in the context. Really, yeah. to be honest. And uh, sorry, that's a really sort of like nondescript answer there. But, no, uh, I, I think um, that that's what makes it so interesting. Is like some people, it's very clear, yeah. and other, it's like you're open to a variety of options. It's more about the cocktail of the, in, the total environment than it is yeah. the golf course. Yeah, it's not just the golf course, and it's not just the people. It's the uh, the amalgamation of all things together sure. that create the the environment and the event. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're entirely right. I mean, I think that one of the courses that I, I remember playing that I really loved was uh, um, in sort of Big Sky, Montana, and it was overlooking kind of oh, the edge wow. of Yellowstone. And I think that, yeah, I could look at that view. I wouldn't even, you know, get through the course, to be honest. I'd just be looking at the view the entire mm. time and dodging wolves. Yeah, there you go. There's the, there's the peril that we needed in golf <laughs> after all. we needed. <laughs> dodging wolves. <laughs> Well, James, how can my listeners get in touch with you uh, if they have questions about branding their brand or what have you? How can they get in touch with you best? Uh, so, yeah, so um, check out that website, um, which is uh, methodbrand.co, and and then also on Instagram, methodbrand.co as well. Um, uh, you can reach out to me on that. And, um, and yeah, honestly, you know, branding is is my passion so it's kind of you know i love hearing about great ideas that people have and trying to find ways that i can help uh you know get them to the next level basically well i can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your super busy schedule <laughs> thank to you come very much. No, thank on the you. verge to share your story with me i appreciate awesome. it thank you very much my pleasure <laughs>on the Verge is produced by Chase Akers. If you've enjoyed the show, leave a five-star rating and write a review. Click subscribe to make sure that you don't miss a single episode.